For the ones who get going when the going gets tough. And the ones who know we're tougher together. For the pathfinders breaking new ground. Granger offers supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as fast access to experts and 24-7 customer support. Because we know you have people depending on you. So you can always depend on us. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. I feel hopeful, even though you said we need record voter turnout. I think we can do it. Oh, we're going to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's going to exceed all expectations. Yeah. I'm excited. This is a glass table. Here's wood. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not superstitious. I think we can do it. I know we can. It just yeah. depends on everyone showing up. Exactly. You know. Yeah. Welcome to our first episode of How We Win. The run-up to the 2020 election is going to be riveting, and every week we'll share these stories from the field. All over the country, ordinary people are doing extraordinary things. We'll give you the tools that you need to jump in and make a difference right now. The clock is ticking, and we want you to join the party. For our debut episode, we'll be chatting with the amazing freshman representative from California's 25th District, Katie Hill. She's going to share her story about stepping up, running, and winning her first campaign for Congress, her surprising connection to Swing Left, and what we need to do to win in 2020. Then we're going to talk about some of the highest impact ways you can make a difference, like how you can help register new Democratic voters in super states. What are super states? We'll tell you all about that, too. I'm Steve Pearson. And I'm Mariah Craven. And And this this is is How We Win. Hey, Mariah. Hey, Steve. (laughs) Usually we're going to use this spot in our show to talk a bit about current happenings in the news, really to highlight uh, areas where we've been successful also and give people an opportunity to do something about it, not just to dissect news, but to actually like, here's what you can do. Right. And uh, we want to give people reasons for hope and let them know that they can make an impact. But since this is our first episode, we thought we would introduce ourselves a little bit and uh, talk about what people can expect from our show, from how we win. So, Mariah, introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Mariah. Um, I uh, did not start off with campaigns and working on campaigns and that sort of thing. But once I got in, I was hooked. And it started with a mayoral campaign in New York City. The candidate I was I was working for was a progressive long shot up against a billionaire candidate. I think we all know who that is. Who allegedly who alleged <laughs> <laughs> So Mr. Bloomberg allegedly had these um phone bank parties that we heard about where there were DJs like spinning for the volunteers and like a <laughs> unlimited pizza and candy. I don't think any of that was true, but that's what we were hearing. And 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 in spite of this sort of uh, amazing thing that greeted volunteers there, we had volunteers come to our campaign office, which was in a self-storage facility in Brooklyn, and it didn't have AC, and um, it was dirty and dingy, and people came to make phone calls and put up signs in bodegas and march in parades with us to hand out lit. And when I saw that, I said, I need to stick with this because anybody who's going to give up their evening, their Saturday, they must really believe in something. And those are the type of people I want to surround myself with. And I also wanted to help elect and keep people in office who were underrepresented. So I started working for folks like Kamala Harris when she was running for senator in California Mm -hmm. and uh, Congress member Karen Bass, who's now the head of the Congressional Black Caucus and Wendy Davis, who was running for governor of Texas, now running for Congress. And then I started uh, working on efforts to help flip the House. That's how I met Steve and so many other great folks. So I want this podcast to be about recruiting people to um, join these incredible teams, no matter what their capacity is, because that is how we win. Nice. What's your story, Steve? Very well said. Boy, um, mine's much more recent. I consider myself class of November 2016. I had done some like phone banking, a little mm-hmm. light volunteering, but I had never gotten really involved with the campaign. And um, we had 
a party for my daughter and her friends to watch the first female president get elected. And it was the worst party ever. Our family kind of went into a tailspin like many other families around the country, around the world. Right. And I had to do something. Mm -hmm. But I'd always been like one of those, like, well, what what can I do? Mm -hmm. You know, um, but there wasn't really an option. I needed to do something because action is the best antidote for anxiety. So I... I jumped in and started volunteering. I'd found Swing Left. My wife and I hosted a house party that turned out to have 200 people. We moved it to a church down the street. And I said yes to too many things, and I was coordinating groups all over Southern California and got really involved in training events. Uh, It just really took off. And what I I found early on, and, and one of the things I'm really excited about this podcast, I didn't realize the space there was to really make an impact And uh, if you're a person that shows up and does stuff, you know, you will get recruited to do more stuff. You have to show up, though. You have to show up. You have to show up. So I wanted to share those stories with people and let them know that there is a space for everyone to make an impact. And spoiler alert, that is how we win. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. You know, if we show up and get our friends and neighbors and everyone to be part of this, not just vote, but volunteer. Right. That's how we will win. So um, I can't wait to share these stories. And Katie Hill is the perfect person to start with because that's how we first met was working in 25. Right. And she won because people people showed up before Election Day. That's how we did it. We, we organized early. That's what we have to do right now. I don't want anyone listening to this thinking that um, they can wait to get involved. They need to get involved right now. So let's get started. <laughs> In 2018, as a result of a lot of early organizing and historic volunteer engagement, we flipped 40 congressional districts, that's right, across the country. Still exciting. I know. (laughs) And elected an amazing new class of diverse and energetic leaders to the House of Representatives. Mm -hmm. One of these great new leaders is Representative Katie Hill from California. Her story parallels many of our own as we jumped into the fray to fight back against Trump and the Republican agenda. Mm-hmm. Her campaign was a true grassroots effort as this first-time candidate became one of our youngest representatives and has already found herself in well-deserved leadership positions. Representative Hill, thank you for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. First, I want to just talk about the campaign sure. a little bit. and. Um, you have a particularly unique swing left story. I do. Too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> How did you come to run for Congress? Sure. So um, the it really started, I think, as so many people who who ran in this past election cycle. Um, when Trump got elected, it was a wake up call for me and and so many people I knew. Um, I worked with the homeless organization Path, people assisting the homeless, and uh, as the executive director. I had spent a lot of my time and energy over, um, you know, over the years really working to develop policy and build the political will to address homelessness here on the local level. Um, and that was culminating with, uh, with getting uh, Prop HHH on the ballot uh, in November of 2016. So we got it onto the ballot. It and was what, a huge and deal. And what was Prop HHH? It, really was, uh, it was a, a housing measure, a, a bond measure to build permanent, supportive, and a and affordable housing and uh, and really address homelessness in a scale that we've never done in, um, you know, certainly in L.A. and really in any community across the country. There's never been an investment that significant. It was right. uh, over a billion dollars and um, over a course of time. And so it's it's an exciting ballot initiative. We, you know, we were optimistic that it would pass, but, um, you know, we didn't want to let anything up. And it was a grassroots effort to try and get it to pass. And uh, it did. It passed with almost 80% of the vote. But instead of being able to celebrate, um, you know, everyone was in my office the next day crying, saying Donald Trump is president. We've got a Republican-held House and Senate. And they ran a campaign on getting rid of the Affordable Care Act, which is so crucial in the work that we do. I mean, it had made it possible for people to, you know, it was literally saving lives. People who were dying on the streets before had access to health care. and. Right. You know, it was funding a lot of the services that we were providing and, and you know, it meant jobs were on the line, people's lives were on the line. Um, you know, this – and the victory that we had had with Prop HHH was almost – it was it was in a way 
just a, an afterthought because without the services, housing can only do so much. And so I didn't have a good answer for my team. And um, other than to say, well, we've got to we've got to continue to fight on local funding initiatives. Um, and we have to we're going to have to flip the house. That's the first opportunity we're going to get to put um, to put a check on what this administration can do. And, um, you know, and, and the sort of attempts to get to roll back uh, coverage and to roll back programs that we know are so vital. Right. So we started working on the local initiative called Measure H, which was the corresponding county initiative to provide um, services dollars, service dollars. And um, that was one side of it. But on the other side, I said, okay, how am I going to get involved in the midterms? I want to do something. And I'd never, frankly, I'd never really done political campaigns in any real way. I, that just wasn't wasn't something that I, I you know, I, I voted. Um, right. And I, I was... I was always following politics, but where I got involved was on, you know, on the NGO side, on the on the nonprofit side. I mean, I volunteered with Planned Parenthood and um, and you know with other organizations like the homeless services organizations and things like that. But I was like, this is the time. This is the time. I have to get involved in a campaign. And you know, I know there, there were literally millions of people across the country who had that same exact thought uh, after yep. the 2016 election. And so, in the months following, I started thinking about okay. Where are the districts that, you know, I I knew that it was about flipping the house. Where are the districts that we can flip? And so I start doing a little bit of research about it. And it was at Swing Left was the website that I found. Mm -hmm. So I plug in my zip code. I think it was you searched by zip code, right? Was that what it was? Yep. And and the district, the swing district that popped up was my own district. And I was like, wait a second. No way. I mean, I grew (laughs) up in, in the 25th district where it had been held by a Republican my whole life. In its current form, it's never been held by a Democrat until now. And it's where cops and firefighters live. It's a huge veterans community. Um, The former representative before Steve Knight was chairman of armed services. And it was it's a place where people if you if you were to say, oh, yeah, this is a district that could flip to a Democrat, people like literally would laugh in your face. Right. So it didn't even occur to me that that could be a possibility. Um, until I saw it. And I was like, this is great. I'm going to get involved in my own district. This is amazing. And I didn't even know before looking that up that Hillary Clinton had won in our district. And so I was like, okay, this is this is really amazing. So I, I was like, okay, who's going to run? Who's who's the candidate? And I ended up finding out that the candidate from the last time around from who had, won, who had run in 2016, the Democratic nominee, was the likeliest to run again. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just didn't feel like his background was one that resonated with our district. And, you know, we saw that, right? We saw that Hillary Clinton had won by almost seven, but he had lost by six. But Steve Knight, the Republican incumbent, had won by six. So, you know, to me, that's a that's a significant gap. And that's one that we have to figure out how to close. And so I'm complaining about this, right? I'm like saying you know, to my to my friends and Colleagues, like, okay, we got we got to find somebody who can run, who's like from this community, who really understands it, who knows how to talk to, you know, law enforcement and to the to the people who are really in the middle. See of the what happens when you do too much complaining. I know, and so <laughs> and so that's what that's what one of my mentors said. She's like, well, you're complaining an awful lot about this. Like, you've got that kind of background. Why don't you run? And I was like, no, 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 no. That's not something that people like me do. You. I didn't know any politicians that were in – I mean, that was certainly not something that my family is. My my dad's a cop. My mom's a nurse. Um, my grandfather was a political science professor. But, like, that was something you studied, not something that you did. And so finally I was like, well, you know what? If ever there was a moment to do something like this, this is the time. And I remember talking to my loved ones and saying, you know, if I'm going to try something like this, it's – you know, I don't have the money that you know a normal a normal political campaign comes with. I don't have right. the the connections or the backing of the institutions. This is going to be a truly grassroots campaign that starts with all of us. That really starts with you know the the networks that we have, the community that we've built. And so the first meeting that we had, I kind of gathered my <laughs> my family and friends together, and we met at a Chili's restaurant. In Stevenson Ranch. Did you have baby back ribs? Oh, we, we just had <laughs> drinks, honestly, and some <laughs> okay. chips, I think. Um, uh, and we kind of, like, laid it out, and um, and it just grew from there. So it's it's just amazing to think how far things have come and, you know, just seeing that growth over time, how many volunteers came on board, and by the end of it all, how this was so much more than 
it was it, it was it wasn't about me. You know what I mean? It was just it was about it was about what's possible for our country, what's possible for our generation, what's possible, and what we have to do to to reflect the values and the diversity and the everything that this nation stands for. That's well, really well said. And also, it, it, it as you're talking about Chili's and, like, the people in your community who knew you from PATH and who knew you from, you know, whatever job you had yeah. as a teenager in elementary yeah. school, and, and now you represent them in Congress, what is it like going back to your home district? Oh, and- yeah. It's so funny. I mean, I—so now— People people know me everywhere, and it's it's very easy for me when I'm back home to just kind of forget that I'm now a, f- a figure, right? So I go out, and I didn't have my makeup. I had my hair up. I'm wearing, like, you know, whatever. And um, and then I go to Barnes & Noble. I'm like, I'm going to get a book because I'm going to be on the plane, and I'm, like, trying – I'm trying to, like, kind of use this this – period, this work period, as uh, a little bit more relaxing than you normally have. So I'm like, I'm going to read a book. This is so exciting. And so I go to Barnes & Noble, which, by the way, I used to work at. I, uh, I worked at right after high school. And so I'm, like, going through thinking, not even thinking. It doesn't even occur to me that people recognize me. So I go up to the counter to buy the book, and the guy goes, like, so how's Washington? And I'm like, who, who are you? How do I know you? And then I'm like, oh, wait, of course, you just know who I am. And... um it's like, you got on some really good committees, huh? And I'm like, yep. Yeah. And then today I went into the frozen yogurt place and somebody was like, is that the congresswoman? And so it's just, it's very, it's just, it's not something that I'm used to at all. And, um, you know, these are people who in some cases you run into people that you've known since you were a little kid. And, um, but now you're, I don't know, representing them. And it's, it's, it's a strange contrast to when you go to D.C., what book did you get? That's what I was going to ask. <laughs> so, I was going to ask two follow-ups. I want to know what book you got and what flavor frozen yogurt you got. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> well, so I ended up buying a couple books. Um, the book that I read on the on the flight was Play It As It Lays by Joan Didion. Hmm. Very, like, it's it's a very, if, if you have, haven't read it, then it's a, it's a serious read for sure. Wow. But it's um, really, really good. And then the other is called The Power. It's a, it's... Feminist novel, so I'm excited to read it. But I haven't gotten there yet. Yeah, cool. Oh, and then frozen yogurt. I am a original tart flavor person with chocolate chips and almonds. Nice. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, it's always the same. (laughs) I'm the same. I have the same. uh, I know. I don't know if it's Jamba or Jamba. I never say Jamba. Is it Jamba Jamba, for sure? For sure. Because my daughter always gives me a hard time about it. Anyway, does she she say it's Jamba or Jamba? I say it so many different ways just to f- mess with her that um, I don't even no, know. No, it's Jamba. Anymore. It's Jamba. Are you talking about yeah. Jamba juice? Yeah. yeah. It's Jamba, yeah. <laughs> Jamba? Yeah. Okay. I think we should just <laughs> keep talking about Jamba juice. I think that's that's the direction we should go right now. <laughs> but back to your campaign. Sure. Uh, <laughs> uh, which was fueled, I think, in part by Jamba juice. Oh, uh, 100%. Just to give them some more. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And LaCroix and Monster Energy. I mean, like, let's just give the real corporate shout-outs here. And uh, (laughs) the Mexican restaurant next to your campaign office. Oh, yeah. Who gave all those beautiful breakfast burritos on Election Day. That was really nice. Wait, I don't remember which one. Chewy's? Yes, next to to the the one in Stevenson Ranch. Yeah, Yeah. Chewy's. Anyway, I digress. (laughs) Um, But you did have, like, this incredible amount of volunteer energy. Yes. the turnout for your canvases were ridiculous. It was amazing. It was really amazing. Um, how, I mean, it's kind of an obvious question. How important were your volunteers to you? But also, um, was there like a particular experience with a volunteer that really stood out for you? Gosh, there's so many because the, you know, we started the primary. I announced in March of 2017. So it was a very long campaign. And um, it started with such a small number of people, but it kept growing over time. And so th- throughout the course of the primary, I was like, you know, this is incredible how many volunteers we have showing up to help us in a primary where, yeah. you know, there were unprecedented numbers of people who were helping us um, even then. But then after the after the primary, it just like the floodgates opened. And what I still hear constantly when I'm out in the community is that, man, your people, they call them our people, not our volunteers or our staff or whatever, just our people. They are. They're your people. Uh, yeah. Um, did such a great job of going around the community. They came to our neighborhood so many times. They knocked on my door so many times. I got all that literature, like, with notes on it from people saying that they stopped by. And 
I just didn't have a choice. I had to go vote. And I'm like, that is exactly what it's supposed to be. And yes. um, just during Get Out the Vote weekend, we had over 5,000 volunteers who, who came out and, uh, you know, from all across uh, across the state and certainly across the region. And I think the stories that just stand out to me were really – it's really the young people that I think were the most incredible. Um, and kids, I mean, really, really young people who were – who are paying attention, who were into it, not just because their parents were dragging them around, but, like, they were the ones. I heard from from many parents that it was their 10- or 11-year-old who said, we have, to, we have to do something about this, and that that's how they ended up getting involved. And then on the other side, you know, it was I heard over and over again from people who said that they hadn't done it, from old, older folks who said that they hadn't done something like this since Kennedy. Um, mm. You know, it, this is, we're just at this moment when it requires all of us to step up in a way that probably of the people who showed up to volunteer for us, I would say 90% solidly had never done anything political. Or if they had, it had been, you know, marginal. Maybe they did a day in Vegas for, you know, one of the presidentials before or something like that. But um, it was a first-time experience for so many people. And um, I hope that they had a good enough experience that they're going to come back. And if it's not for me, then for, you know, the presidential race or for some of the other key districts across the country because we have to keep the House. There's no doubt about that. We need to flip the Senate and, and we need to take take back the White House. So Yeah. I think a lot of people in Southern California know you because they probably volunteered <laughs> yeah. uh, for your campaign. But I think people outside of California probably know you from the Vice News documentaries that aired on HBO. Uh, Talk about our commitment to transparency. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, What what was it like being followed around by those crews, and and is it something that you would do again? Yeah. So when I decided to... So originally, the kind of pitch from Vice was like, we'll follow you around for a little bit, and we just want to give like like an eight or nine minute segment on what a campaign is like. This was early in the primary process, and they wanted to do it about women, the, you know, the women who are running in the primaries. And, and I thought, I was like, this is, this is important to me as somebody who's coming into this for the first time. Um, all of the things that I'd learned by being involved you know, as a candidate, uh, I felt like people should know. I think that if you want people across the board to buy into democracy and to get involved, they need to, they need to know what happens behind the scenes, and they need to understand that um, it needs to be accessible in a way that it hasn't been. And so I was like, I want to do this. And and my consultants, my team were very nervous um, <laughs> because it is it is this level of transparency. I mean, Kelsey normally, was totally cool with it, though, right? Kelsey was yeah. cool with it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> she's shaking her she's, head. She's my campaign manager, um, who's been with me since the very beginning. But she... She and and the rest of the team were like, okay, we'll we'll try it. But normally, you know, historically, and I think even to a certain extent still, uh, politicians have a cultivated image that you that you that you work to create and maintain. Um, and when you have a a crew following you around nonstop, I mean, they were with us constantly. You don't you don't get to do that. Um, you it just even if you tried which I wasn't really trying, but even if you did try, you get so used to having cameras around that you f- you forget. And that's, I mean, that shows you that they're good at their jobs, right? Like, it's the point of a documentary kind of crew. There were a couple of points where things that happened in it were caused a little bit of trouble, but um, I feel like overall it was a complete, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change anything about it. I think um, even the things that were probably less than ideal were ones that I feel like showed that, you know, this wasn't this wasn't a commercial. This wasn't this wasn't something that we had any kind of editorial say over. This was a real attempt for me to hopefully show people what what it's like and also that I and not just me, but so many of my were regular people and trying yeah. to trying to trying to do something good. So I feel like, you know, you kind of continued that transparency now as representative Thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, putting out the way you communicate, putting out videos. Do you feel like because there's a lot of other um, new Congress members yeah. who are doing the same thing? Yeah, yeah. Um, you feel like it's a new way that people I completely are do communicating. I really do, and uh, I think that what what people are finding is that that's, that's the only way you can relate anymore. I mean, I, I feel like our generation 
has just an incredibly astute sense of bullshit. And if you they, – they're never going to believe a campaign ad. But if you're just right. talking to them like a regular person, they get a sense of whether you're sincere and whether you, you know – are, are, you know, saying what you mean and, and meaning what you say. And um, I feel like my colleagues get that. And I think I think it comes from the fact that we have a, a different age group that has now come into Congress. I mean, we had yeah. two millennials before this wave. Now, I don't even know what the number is, but our group um, of 64 freshman Democrats, we lowered the age of um, the average age of a member of Congress by 10 years just through yeah. this class, which is wild when you think about it. And I just think that completely changes how, over the long run, that's going to change how politics works. And it's certainly going to change the focus and the priorities and and um, hopefully the level of accountability that we've got to regular people as opposed to... Yeah, and accessibility for people who mm-hmm. don't feel like they can relate or have a voice within yep. our, our politics. Yep. And, you know, I think it's important to recognize that most people will never have a face-to-face interaction with their representative just because they're they work some people you know many people work two jobs they've got kids they've got extracurricular activities they're living their lives and um you know they're not going to make it to a town hall or they're not going to have an opportunity to go to some kind of a an event that's happening you know even if they want to it's just a matter of time i'd never met my member of congress before and um, you didn't hang out with Steve Knight before I this? didn't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, granted, I'd met other members of Congress, but through my job. And that's because I had a job that, like, required that. But, um, but yeah, regular people, that's not something that you that you feel connected to in any way. And I think that that's why, in large part, we've had low voter participation because people haven't felt the connection to um, the person who's representing them. They haven't felt a connection to the uh, the impact that those the, the decisions that are being made have on their day-to-day lives. And they, they haven't felt like they're actually being represented. And so these kinds of videos, the way that we're trying to connect people over social media, uh, I feel like that really matters um, in terms of you are able to know, know, and I guess kind of air quotes, your representative in a way that you just wouldn't previously. Right. Well, you talked uh, really briefly about fundraising. I don't want to talk too much about fundraising because that's not a fun conversation. But it is important, and I think it, I'm glad but, that you're bringing it up at all because it is one of those things that it's like, oh, we want to stay away from that topic. But it's it's so important for people to understand, A, why we have to do it, and B, um, that this is, you know, I hope I hope people who are listening to this podcast are many, many of them are considering running for some kind of office uh, at some point yeah. now. Um, and, and so knowing the, the role that fundraising is going to have to play in your life is <laughs> something to be aware of. Did you know that going in? I did, yeah. um, at least on some level, cause you know, I knew, I knew going into the conversations that like y- you hear over and over again from anyone who's run for office, like fundraising, 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 and, and you're like, yeah, 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 sure. But, um, so I knew that I was going to have to raise a lot to, especially to try and defeat an incumbent. And but when you think about a lot, that's not, it's not, you're not fully able to kind of comprehend. I never would have thought eight and a half million dollars, which is what we ended up having to raise yeah. by the end of it. And frankly, if you'd said eight and a half million dollars to me from individual donations that are no higher than twenty seven hundred dollars uh, from a single person, I would have like laughed and said, all right, well, count me out now because that's never going to happen. So um, it was these incremental goals that seemed so impossible each step of the way that you somehow managed to achieve that um, that worked us up to that final number. But I didn't think about how how much how, – how truly important it is to getting your final message out because, you know, I think an init- initially a politician, including myself, or somebody who wants to be a politician that – is not coming from kind of a an, a formally educated political background. Um, you think you think grassroots, right? You're like, I'm going to do it with the people. I'm going to go out and I'm going to talk to to everybody, and that's how I'm going to do it. But the reality is that in a congressional district, you're representing 725,000 people, and I don't care how much time you spend out on the streets, you will never talk to all those people. Um, so. Y- 
it took some time for me to come to terms with the fact that the only way that you're going to be able to actually get your message out to a lot of those people are is is by raising the money to be able to do that through TV, through mail, through social media, and um, and that's just the that's just the reality of it. And we had uh, Swing Left had our district funds yes. that raised money. And oh, then that was such a big help right after the primary. <laughs> <laughs> I got to hand you that big uh, that was so golf fun. check. That yep. was an awesome afternoon. That was so great. Yeah, and you were pretty much tapped out at that point after oh, yeah. expensive primary. Oh, yeah. And every one of my colleagues that made it through the primary, I don't think anyone had anything left. Um, we, I didn't want to go into debt during the primary because – Either I was going to be out and not able to raise any money, or um, we were going to need everything after to, to go towards the towards the general. So you know, you finish the primary and you're like, suddenly, okay, we've got to go into the general election. You have to staff up, not down, and your next payroll is two weeks out or less than that. And um, and so the fact that the swing left funds came in when they did was just it was. It was so great. I mean, literally the next day we found out that it was coming. It was like this huge sigh of relief. <laughs> and so it sounds like you, you've you learned a lot since you've been in Congress and a lot from um, running your first winning – your first campaign, first winning campaign. Um, what lessons are you going to take from 2018 moving into 2020 that we could, you know, all learn from as well? Um, gosh, that's a great question. Well, I guess the top the, – the number one – thing that I came out of 2018 with was that the field mattered so much and that the turnout was vital. And, I, you know, I, I feel like you're still hearing this debate between people of whether persuasion is the way to win these districts or if turnout is. And I would argue very strongly that it's both, but that you cannot I, – I, I honestly believe that you cannot win these races and turn and flip them without turnout. So, you know, I think you have to have the persuasion element as well, but but you don't have the option of leaving votes on the table. Um, and explain, so, explain briefly the difference between turnout and persuasion. So turnout means that you are literally getting people to show up and vote. And uh, uh, Barack Obama talks about this all the time and, and you hear others. But if you just look at the population in general of eligible voters, well over 55 to 60 percent are Democratic uh, – Democratic-leaning, likely to vote for Democrats. Right. But we just don't show up in the numbers that we should. Right. So if, you know, if we're able to mobilize and ensure that people are able to vote and, and know why they need to and, and feel like their voices are going to be heard and their vote matters and is going to be counted, then we win every time. Um, but that requires... It requires people power, and mm-hmm. it requires uh, it requires a lot of time and effort, and um, you know it it means that you really have to have those boots on the ground of people knocking on doors and like like I heard from those in my district who said your people did such a great job. Um, it means going at going back over and over and over again and saying like, hey, can we count on your support? Hey, are you definitely going to show up and vote? Do you have any questions about your polling place? Or now that we're doing. Um, you know, mail-in ballots or, or mm-hmm. the, the whole voting system is changing for 2020 in California. Right. We have to be really on top of that in terms of making sure that people know how to vote, that they're registered, that they're registered with the right address. Like, it's really important to go to inform people. And that's important in California. Just imagine how important that is in places where voting rights are under attack and where the state legislatures have and and the powers that be have made it so to, to try and make it as difficult as possible to suppress the vote. So um, the, inter- the, the activism that needs to happen, um, you know, in states like, you know, in the South, uh, it's going to be absolutely vital for the, the volunteers to, to um, assist in that effort. Okay, so I, I got off, off target a little bit, but persuasion mm. are, um, is— No, that's the, important, though. But before you yeah. talk about persuasion, because I think it's important to understand— like you said, um, that voting rights are still very much under attack. Yep. Yep. And um, so the, the work that we do on the ground is so essential, you know, because it's not a fair fight. Yep, exactly. Not- exactly. And um, and so I'm, I'm just such a believer in, in field. And, uh, I, you know, I was before, but after having been through it, it's just solidified that belief for me a million times over. And the power of, of volunteers, like I, th- I think that 
you know, we didn't do a huge amount of paid field because we had this incredible grassroots energy. But if people keep showing up, that allows that allows us to go so much further. Every dollar is able to go so much further, um, you know, and and invest in the areas that you really need to because you've got people on the ground who are doing that critically important work. But yeah, that's that's my that's my biggest takeaway. But I would all as far as persuasion goes, persuasion is kind of that group of of people in the middle who. Um, can be persuaded either way to vote for a Republican or a Democrat. Your independent voters typically fall into that category, but you also have, you know, kind of certain Democrats and Republicans towards the middle that fall into the persuasion category. Um, And, you know, you don't want, again, you don't want to leave a single vote on the table. So if somebody is really dissatisfied with the president or with, you know, they have, for example, one of the one, one of the persuasion areas that, I think has gotten more and more important, especially for um, suburban women, mm-hmm. is the issue of gun violence. And um, and so if if they are frustrated, feeling insecure about you know their kids' safety um, with the Senate, like that they're persuadables, right? They might have voted Republican forever, but this could be the chance to change their minds. And um, and the only way that you can really effectively change somebody's mind is through a concerted effort, which is also through field. Right. Well, that's a good segue, actually, into the work that you're doing now as a representative. One thing that I I think is really frustrating is uh, all this amazing work that you guys are doing in the House of Representatives and um, specifically some of the gun legislation that you've passed through, and and then it doesn't even get a look in Senate. So what are some things that, that we can do to help support that and to put pressure on to get that legislation through? Yeah, well, you know, the answer is not, it's not a great answer because the reality is that that it has to come, the public pressure is what's going to make anything happen. And if the public pressure isn't enough because Mitch McConnell won't budge from it or others won't budge from it, the president is just doesn't care beyond his base, et cetera, et cetera, uh, then the public pressure has to come next November. Right. And um, and that is where, you know, Swing Left is, as an organization and all of these grassroots organizations are going to be absolutely vital. And I I feel like uh, there was a certain amount of, of awareness going in that, well, we're coming in, we're going to have the House, you know, control of the House, but we won't have the Senate, we won't have the White House. So most legislation is not going to happen, right? Like we just kind of, you kind of know that, especially knowing where... Mitch McConnell is on things, where President Trump is on things, and and how di- <laughs> how divided uh, the parties are right now. But I feel very strongly that what we're doing now in terms of passing this legislation is laying a marker that shows what Democrats will do, what we're willing to do, what we stand for, and what we should be doing as soon as we get people in power who who reflect our values. And to me, I don't think we have an option but to flip the Senate. Um, and the White House, certainly. I mean, to me, that's a given. But I hear a lot of people say, oh, well, we're, you know, it's not very likely that we're going to get the Senate this cycle. And I'm no, don't say, don't say that. First of all, that's totally discounting how people are going to show up this time um, in a way that they've, that I don't think we've, we will have seen turnout on the scale that we're going to see in 2020. Right. Um, but also, if if you say we're not going to get the Senate, then we're not going to get the Senate because you're not going to try. Right. And um, I think it is completely possible to get the Senate if you if I mean, four you, seats, right? If you focus on showing on you on getting people to show up. I mean, these are not areas where where only Republicans live in this state. It's just a matter of overcoming the barriers that exist in terms of um, you know in, in terms of voting rights, in terms of voter suppression, but also making sure that people really feel like this is an opportunity for their voices to be heard and why their representative is failing so much. And frankly, I think we can do a lot better than four seats. So Yeah. Fingers crossed yeah. and and get to work everybody, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think is 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 that important message. I think also in addition to the um, gun safety issues, people are feeling a similar frustration and urgency around what's happening at the border. Mm-hmm. And I know that you were recently there. Can you yeah. talk a little bit about what you saw and if what you saw changes how you're approaching uh, policies? Yeah. For so I actually went to the Northern Triangle, which is Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras. Those are the three countries where we're seeing the vast majority of um, 
of of immigrants coming to our border. Uh, they're coming from Central America and through Mexico and and trying to come here to build a better life, uh, better lives for their families. And um, and then at the border, I went to McAllen, Texas, saw one of the the largest facilities uh, for processing and and um, what I saw during the trip to Central America was that there are three driving factors that are pushing people out. Violence, just gang violence and, and other violence that is on a scale that we really couldn't even imagine. I mean, eight-year-olds are getting recruited to gangs. And when I say recruited, it's it's coerced. It's, you know, threats of of violence to their families. It's you know, saying to an eight-year-old that if you don't do this, we're going to rape your sister. Like, I mean, can you even imagine an eight-year-old having to process that? And um, and and so it's it's horrible things like that happening. Gender violence, sexual violence is just through the roof um, from the cartel, from, you know, all, all kinds of different factors. Poverty. Climate change has played a big role in this. And in yeah. uh, Guatemala and Honduras, there's there's been just epic drought and one in two uh, Guatemalan kids under the age of five are so malnourished that their their growth has been stunted. So especially the indigenous people are being pushed out. Like farming isn't possible in the way that it used to be. And so and then third, you just have corruption and happening on a on a scale that, well, frankly, I I would normally say that we couldn't even imagine. <laughs> we can imagine it now. That's um, too bad. Horrifyingly, but uh, but so what I learned about the aid. That we're that we've been providing that the the White House has or that this administration has cut off to these countries is I think there's actually a misconception that we're just giving money to these governments and and I can understand why if you feel like what well, we know that these governments are corrupt that we sh- that we shouldn't be just giving money to them but the money's not going to the government the the money is going to our own agencies including in some cases the FBI the DEA. Um, it's going to uh, to our State Department, to USAID, which grants funds to um, really, really reputable uh, NGOs, nonprofits that are just doing vital work that is that is focused on keeping people from having to migrate in the first place. Um, and that that funding absolutely should not be cut if we want to stem the flow of migration. Um, and in fact, it should be. You know, we should be reviewing what works and we should be increasing investments in that regard because we, the U.S. has responsibility and needs to take responsibility for some of the interventions that we've, um, that we've done over the decades in, that have caused destabilization in the region. That's one set of things is we've got to make the effort to keep people from migrating in the first place. The second is at the border. Um, you know, I didn't see – unsanitary conditions. I didn't see people, you know, drinking from toilets or anything like that. And the crowding had actually gone down pretty significantly from what it had been previous weeks. This is anticipated because of the um, because of the summer migration just slows down in general, but also the remain in Mexico policies. I mean, you know, ethically, I don't agree with them. But regardless, people aren't making it to the to the border in the same way they were. Um, so I didn't see that. But what I did see was just that we are treating people who are fleeing out of desperation like criminals. And there's no real soft, softer way of defining that. I mean, 18- and 19-year-old women who aren't technically minors, but they're teenagers, who, knowing what I learned from the trip to the Northern Triangle, I can guarantee you that they have experienced sexual trauma in a way that we, like— multiple times and levels that, you know, again, don't even occur to us. And they're in a cell behind glass, behind, you know, behind these steel doors. And, you know, as we're going through, we're as as a group of members of Congress kind of getting the tour, I guess, you just see them like it's it's like this window here where their hands are up and like tears are streaming down their face. And I mean, it's just heartbreaking. And, um, you know, yes, they broke the law to come here. Well, they, they're going to apply for asylum, I hope, um, but they don't have representation that's telling them exactly how to, you know, because now domestic violence is a qualifier for asylum. But, you know, who knows if, if, if it'll be done right and if they get sent back, what, what's going to happen to them, especially since the aid that was helping to fund the resources that would, you know, would help people if they got sent back to their home country 
has been cut. I mean, it's it's really devastating. And then, you know, families, same same kind of thing, right? These are I don't, you know, yes, you can always find examples of of you know horrible situations where kids are being trafficked and try and and criminals are trying to use kids to kind of find loopholes. There, I'm sh- I'm sure there are examples of that. That has happened. Not going to deny that, but the vast majority of people are really just here because they don't feel like they have another option. And and so I think our the fundamental problem with our system is that it does treat people like criminals in that way. And I think we need to have more avenues for legal immigration so that it isn't a matter of of committing a crime to be able to try and come here. And um, you know, you I hear a lot about like, well. They should go through the line. They should do it the right way like everybody else has to. There is no right. There is no way of doing that now. I mean, the waiting list doesn't exist. There isn't a process that makes it possible for someone to actually come here, um, quote, unquote, the right way now, especially with the attempts by this administration to stop legal immigration. Um, And I saw the trauma that was happening to Border Patrol agents from, from experiencing the same thing day in and day out of literally having, you know, Kids in cages. There's no. There's no other way to put it. That's, these are. Yeah. Th- that's the reality of what it is. And um. And they said I had multiple of the border patrol agents say to me, "Yeah, it's 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 really really sad every single day because we know that if how lucky we are to be born here because if we were on the other side of the border if we were in one of those countries we would be doing the exact same thing. And um. You know I don't. I I feel like it's important for us to not dehumanize the border patrol agents or or people who are trying to do their jobs there either there again there there are bad people or or there there are cultural problems i think in certain segments within the agency but overall i think it's a it's a systemic problem that exists within the way that we think about immigration now and that fundamentally has to shift and the way that it shifts is by shifting um, attitudes uh, among our elected officials to finally create comprehensive immigration reform in the way that um, that truly does reflect our values. And if we can't shift those attitudes, oh, I meant need, shift it by voting them then out. We need to yeah, vote no, them I, I meant shift it by shifting. Them. You're not going to shift their their opinions at this point. So. Right. <laughs> you know, we were talking earlier about how transparent you are, and you engage with people on social media. And I remember. I'm seeing, I think it was a snap of you running into Pelosi. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, early on um, in on the way to D.C., I think. Um, but it seems like you all just get along so well, and you've kind of got this Speaker Pelosi um, seal of approval. <laughs> and I thought this was so interesting um, because I think you represent the, this new blue wave. It's blue, but... It's. I, I don't think everybody thought of themselves as part of the the Democratic Party. Yeah. In the way that everybody kind of now is, um, and we all kind of realize that we have to like work together to win again in in twenty twenty. So how do this 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 traditional uh, traditional Democrats and the new blue wave yeah work together successfully moving forward? Yeah, I I agree with you that I think. As far as I'm concerned, and I, I, again, I don't think that I'm alone in this. Um, from my, from what I know from my freshman colleagues, is when we went in, you know, we knew that we were coming in as a class of disruptors, and that we weren't just running to flip these seats to regular, you know, just another Democrat. We were running because we felt like the system as a whole was was messed up, and that in large part that's why Trump came to power. And you know, so the fact that so many of us ran saying that we weren't going to take corporate money from the very beginning before there was no organized effort of trying to you know go around the country and say hey will you you know will you say this this was this was organically coming from people deciding to launch their campaigns by saying i i'm not going to be accountable to special interests i'm going to be accountable to you know the people i'm running to represent um but we came in and because of that energy we as freshmen we signed a letter basically saying that the first thing we wanted to take up was HR1, mm-hmm. which was, uh, you know, about transparency in government, about um, getting big money out of politics and voting rights. I mean, it's, it's such an important package. And, Spectacular, and, historic piece of legislation. Oh, yeah. And so side note, if we take the Senate and we have a president that is uh, – that that's a Democrat, the first thing we have to do after 2020 is pass HR1 because – 
as we go into redistricting in 20, the census happens, we go into redistricting in 2022. If we pass HR1 that has the redistricting reforms that prevents gerrymandering like we've seen before, then we, w- we will not be in the situation again that we were in um, leading up to 2018. It will not be possible. We will actually have representation. Um, it's never going to be, you know, it's not going to be perfect, but it's it will not be able to be uh, as as misrepresentative as it has been. So just keep that on everybody's radar. Um, Yet another reason to go ahead and... Uh... <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, this is why I think it is so important to 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 get a Senate and a president that are going to sign H.R. 1 as, like, our first order of business. When, Absolutely. Um, but so, so we, you know, we, we came in knowing that we were sort of, we were disrupting the status quo and that we were doing things differently and that, you know, there was probably going to be a fair amount of resistance to us. We thought that we were going to kind of be butting heads and saying, like, no, 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 this, is, this isn't the way that we're okay with doing things. Don't tell us to, to shut up and be quiet and sit in the corner because mm-hmm. um, it's not going to work. you got a whole bunch of stubborn... I don't know, strong-willed people who have the people behind them uh, across the country. But that wasn't the case. And I was, I was, when people ask me what I'm most surprised by being in Congress or having, having been there now for a, a chunk of time, one of the most frequent answers I give is that we, we have a seat at the table, that we have our voices matter and that, um, that leadership and that the more senior members really respect the fact that we represent, I think, a new a new wave of politics and uh, a new generation of of people whose voices haven't been heard before, and so I think that the tension that we were expecting just hasn't been there in the way that you know I thought. That's not to say that it doesn't exist; it does in some cases, and you you see that play out with the sort of two sides of the party, right? And um, probably the the clearest way. But part of what I see my role as as one of the freshman representatives to leadership is. Is helping to bridge that divide too, and um, you know, I I know, I understand. I've I've been through the same kinds of challenges that our frontliners faced. Not even as bad as as those who are in districts that were that where Trump won by sixteen points, which some of my colleagues do represent. But I also, you know, being from California and right next to LA, and I have the latitude. I feel like to be more progressive than than some of my peers from the other 40 seats that flipped. And serving on oversight, I've become friends, good, pretty good friends with, you know, Rashida and Ilhan and, and Alex and, um, and Ayana. And so I, I feel like part of my job is to kind of try to, to keep our eye on what matters and not on this inner party um, f- fighting, infighting, because at the end of the day, we are so, so much closer on every single thing that matters than the Republican Party and certainly than Trump and certainly than Mitch McConnell. Uh, and that's what we've got to stay focused on because if we – because the media loves to try and focus on these splits. And Love it. Yeah. every narrative – I mean every <clears throat> article that you see, you're like, who made that I – mean, you made that up. That wasn't even a thing. Um, and so we've really got to stay focused on that and to anyone who's who's – you know the impeachment issue is one that I know that has that has had people concerned. I will just say, have some faith; it's going to be okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I don't know. Just the the device we can't, we can't afford the inner party divisiveness. So, well, I want to wrap up with three questions, kind of related, and these are the big questions. Um, one: What's your biggest concern going into twenty twenty? into the election and what should Democrats really be doing more of? Two, what gives you the most hope for the future? And then, of course, how can we help? Sure. So my biggest concern uh, is is making sure that people vote. Um, again, it's it's about really, really focusing on on empowering people and making sure that uh, that every single person in Frankly, in any district, but also specifically in states that need to flip, that we need to flip Senate seats um, in these other districts, where I, I'm I'm not comfortable with the majority we've got in in the House. I think our majority needs to be a lot bigger, um, and you have to protect. We have to protect those. We might get forty one soon. Yeah, let's hope. Um, but <laughs> with North Carolina coming up in a few. But weeks. to to be able to be as bold as possible and as aggressive as possible on dealing with the challenges that I don't think we have an option, but to to go after with every single 
thing that we've got from healthcare to climate change to gun safety, uh, we need that big majority, and we need to we need to be aggressively voting people out who don't stand for what we believe needs to happen um, at the Senate level, at the House level, and of course at the White House. So, making sure that we are empowering people to vote has to be the number one priority, and, and making sure that they they are able to exercise their voice and and know that they need to, and that we're counting on them, and that the country and our future and the future of the world is counting on them. Um, so that ties back into to how you all can help. I mean, that is the way that, that you know, the army of volunteers that showed up in 2018 um, can, again, uh, and I would say that, well, the presidential is, is absolutely vital, we can't lose sight of the other part because, you know, if you're frustrated that we flipped the House and that was so great, but the legislation is dying at the Senate now, imagine how frustrated you're going to be if we have a president and a House of Representatives that are democratically controlled, but we still have a Senate that's not going to do anything. Um, so we have to focus on all three at once. And imagine how horrible it would be if you lost the House because we were so focused on the White House. Um, and so we need to... That, These are horrible thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> I'm imagining it right now. I don't like anything in my brain right but, now. But where there's hope is that, you know, we saw record turnout in 2018. Truly, I mean, double the size of, of past midterms, mm-hmm. and especially record turnout among young people, people of color, so important. And um, those, are, those are the groups of people who have, who have typically not had a voice, who have felt like there's no reason for them to vote, and in many cases who it's harder to vote, that we need to get to show up more and again— but I feel like just from what I'm seeing from young people who have been engaged in our campaign, from the high school students that I talk to, um, all the way down, that, that that we've hit a moment where that's going to happen. That's not to say that we can just hope that it happens. But I really honestly believe that we are going to have turnout um, and, and young people who are showing up. This, by young people, I mean anybody who is under baby boomer age. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um because when generous. You, yeah, well, because <laughs> when you when you look at the way that people vote, if you're under 50, you pretty much overwhelmingly start to vote for Democrats. And that's because I think that the world has changed in such a way that we we've moved on from these really archaic beliefs about equality and about that a gun should have more rights than a woman. So, mm. um I think that there's that really that focus is something I believe in that gives me hope and that makes me feel like, you know, this is a pivotal moment with 2020, um, but it's just the beginning. It's not the end. And that ultimately we'll be able to replace everybody in the legislature that is of this old mindset. And maybe eventually the the two parties that exist are going to be the progressives and the Democrats. And can you imagine how much we'll be able to get done then? So. I'll leave that wonderful thought <laughs> as, our, as our last one. That would be awesome. Representative Katie Hill from CA25, thank you so much for being here, for talking with us. Thank you. Happy to be here. Thanks for all the work that you do. Yeah. thank you to your listeners. (laughs) (laughs) If you want to support Katie Hill, and why wouldn't you, go to katiehillforcongress.com, and um, we'll also have her link up on our page for you to click and donate and all that good stuff. Thanks so much. Katie, you rock. Thank you. Thank you. Let's go get Froyo. Yes. Right. (laughs) So Katie talked a lot about not only focusing on the presidential election, which is, I think, a really important point, Mm -hmm. uh, because there are other races, and Swing Left has figured out where we need to focus our energy, and they're calling these places super states. Right. Obviously, the presidential is is what most people pay attention to, Mm -hmm. but as Katie pointed out, we have to take back the Senate. Right. And uh, and stop all this great legislation from getting blocked. Right. Um, we need four seats to do that, so that's doable. And also, there's a real opportunity for us before the census happens right. to redraw some of these terribly gerrymandered uh, lines. So we have local legislatures and gubernatorial races, and uh, even a, a state supreme court 
race that will have a huge impact on gerrymandering. When you look at those three main things, also, of course, defending our House seats, that creates a number of states that have a combination of one or all three of those things. Mm -hmm. So that's where we really want to focus our energy right now is registering voters in those super states. There's 11 of them. And uh, there's states like Texas and Georgia and Mm -hmm. North Carolina, Florida, Arizona, the Rust Belt, Wisconsin, Michigan, um, Ohio, of course, um, and Maine. Um, I think I got them all. Uh, Go to swingleft.org. Our super state strategy is there. We want to give people strategic focus for their work so that they know they're making an impact. Yeah, I think that's really smart because even when we win back the White House next year, um, we're going to be kicking ourselves if we don't fix this gerrymandering issue. Yeah, and I mean, Katie said it so well when she was talking about, like, if you were frustrated that we won back the House, but we were having trouble getting any legislation through the Senate. Right. Imagine how frustrated you'll be when we win the presidency and the House, but we still don't have the Senate. Right, Mitch I mean, McConnell's still there. It's so, blocking everything. Yeah, 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 it's it's so so important. Yeah. So, um by focusing on these strategic states, we're going to make a huge impact. Thanks everybody for joining us today and thank you for stepping up and taking action. This is how we win. We win when we all get involved. But our work has to start now. Help introduce more people to this movement. Subscribe and share this podcast everywhere on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Insta, and use the hashtag HowWeWin2020. We want to hear from you too. Are there people that you would like to hear from on the podcast? Are there questions that you want answered? You can email us at podcast at swingleft.org. And be sure to come back next week for the next episode of How We Win. See you then.